And we're live with JavaScript Air. We're excited to be talking about functional and immutable design patterns in JavaScript today. And um, before we go too far into the show, I'm going to just make a couple of regular announcements. Um, so remember, this podcast wouldn't be possible without our awesome sponsors. So our premier sponsor is Egghead.io. Um, and they have a huge library of bite-sized web development training videos. Uh, check them out for content on JavaScript, Angular, React, Node, and more. And just as a shout-out to Merrick Christensen for getting his first lesson out today. He's awesome, so go check out his lesson. Uh, Frontend Masters is also a sponsor, and they um, are a recorded, expert-led workshop with courses on advanced JavaScript, asynchronous, and functional JS, as well as lots of other great courses on front-end topics. So if you're interested in the subject today, um, maybe you can check out Frontend Masters to learn more about functional JavaScript. And then TrackJS reports bugs in your JavaScript before customers even notice them. And with their telemetry timeline, you'll have the context you need to actually fix the bugs. So check them out and start tracking your JavaScript errors today at trackjs.com. Cool. And then, um, as always, this is a weekly podcast. And so we have another show next week. And I'm really excited about this one. It's Unit Testing JavaScript. And we have Christian Johansson and Joe Eames and Ward Bell uh, talking about uh, unit testing JavaScript, which I think will be totally legit. And then, as always, follow us on Twitter and Google Plus to keep, oh, and Facebook uh, to keep up with the latest and greatest um, from JavaScript Air. Okay, cool. So let me uh, quickly introduce everybody who is with us today. So um, for from our panelists, we have Kyle Simpson and Tyler McGinnis. What's up? And Lynn Clark should be joining us shortly. Uh, technical difficulties there. Uh, and then we actually, our guests today are also panelists, um, but they are our guests. So introducing them as guests, uh, Brian, uh, uh, yeah, Brian Lensdorf. Hey. <laughs> and uh, Dan Abramoff. Hey. So um, because you are our guests, um, let's go ahead and give you two a second to introduce yourselves and maybe uh, talk about your background with functional programming. Why don't we start out with Brian? Oh, uh, sure. I like... Lynn, it looks like Lynn's here now, too, if you want to say hi. Hey, uh, sorry about that. My headphones weren't working, so I couldn't hear you all, but I'm glad to be on now. You got the tool thing on there, too. Cool. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> it's all coming up Millhouse or whatever. So, uh, yeah, me. Um, I am a normal dude, I guess, that did learn some functional programming from a normal person perspective, I guess. <laughs> and so people seem to um, talk to me about things in layman's terms, and it works out. I guess that's how I'm going to describe myself. <laughs> so by normal dude, do you mean you're, you're not like a, uh, you don't have a doctorate in computer science, and you're not just like, not that they're not normal, but is that what you mean? <laughs> I'm as, as normal as it gets. Yeah, I don't, I don't know much. Um, like, you know, I've been learning some linear logic and set theory and things throughout the years that, you know, so I can read the white papers, and it's fun to kind of share my adventures and talk to people about these things. Um, and I also make little stop-motion videos, because why not? <laughs> yeah, I want to talk to you about those uh, later. <laughs> cool. So, Dan, let's get an intro to you. Yeah, so uh, I'm not really that uh, deep into functional programming. Although people sometimes associate me with it somehow, but uh, that's not exactly true. I think my first exposure to functional programming was um, when I, I was writing C Sharp uh, and somebody told me about Nemural, which is like a very weird language, 
uh, named uh, after a, a wizard uh, from a book. And uh, it, it was a language for .NET, but it introduced me to some functional idioms, and I read about a uh, you know, functional way of programming without mutations, uh, without all that kind of destructive stuff. Uh, but I still uh, was writing imperative code, and later um, I started writing some JavaScript. And again, I started looking at functional programming concepts, and sometimes I found a good use for them in my projects, in products I was working on. And so uh, I'm not really uh, well-versed in functional languages, but uh, I have an idea about them. <laughs> well, I think uh, lots of people associate you with functional programming um, because of Redux and um, yeah. bringing Elm architecture to JavaScript. Um, and so we're excited to, to chat a little bit about uh, that in this episode as well, I think. Um, so we're we're not just talking about functional programming today, though. We're also talking about immutability, and those two are um, sort of in, uh, related uh, with one another. But before we get too far into um, how they're related, I think it would be useful for our listeners and, and viewers to um, get kind of an overview of what functional programming is. So would one of you, maybe Brian, could you uh, give us a definition of functional programming? Uh, sure. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the, it's like a trick question, right? Because... Everybody's like, well, what's functional? It means you're using monads and types. Oh, no, that means you're, you know, able to use macros. And uh, I don't know, it's all sorts of different definitions, but uh, my favorite one is just being able to program with pure functions so you know um, you can have a reliable output per input every time. And we say functional programming coming from the mathematical function perspective of, you know, a set of relations or just input to output, sets of pairs. So that's uh, that's pretty much what I my definition. Can you <laughs> define, else want to throw stuff in? Can you define pure functions for us? Uh, the a pure function? Oh yeah, it's um, just a function with no side effects. Um, for every input, it will always give you the same output. Um, so you could you know give it uh, whatever input you want, and you'll always get the same result without any observable effect. Just. Just thought I'd chime in real quick for any of the listeners that are kind of like lost or wondering about this stuff. Actually, today there was a fantastic couple of blog posts going around, and that's going to be in my picks later. Uh, I don't know if we'll talk about those as well, but uh, um, Chris Jenkins has a, a couple of really great blog posts that break that down very simply. Yeah, that's great. And, and I, saw, I read a little bit of it, and just the examples of, you know, addition and multiplication or string to upper, things like that is just, you know, those functions that you don't have to be scared to run or test or, you know, it's, it's a, it gives you an intuition pretty quick. So um, maybe you can talk about some of the benefits of uh, programming in a functional way, of, of the functional pro, um, programming paradigm. Um, why would I really care to um, write pure functions and write, write my applications in a functional way? Sure. I think, uh, yeah, sorry. go for it. So mm, I think my favorite benefit is a uh, really practical one, is that they're so easy to test. Like, if you write pure functions, uh, it is safe to run them in the, in the test code many times. They're not making some requests uh, that you can't control. Uh, so it's just calculation. You can give them the inputs. You can assert their outputs. Uh, and it's just amazing for cases when you have complicated logic and you need to uh, really test this logic through. So <laughs> I remember uh, the first time I actually went uh, 
went full functional programming uh, when the product needed it was uh, when I was working on a, a parallax-like uh, animation on a complex landing page uh, that had a, a lot of different parts that depended on the scroll and so the first attempt to write that code was imperative like uh, I watched the scroll event, I would move the DOM nodes up and down and it didn't quite work correctly and I would bump into weird uh, edge cases where I would scroll too fast and some element would get in the wrong position, I don't know why this happens so uh, I applied functional programming in a way that I extracted the calculation logic so that uh, I had this function that took the current scroll position and returned the uh, positions of all elements on the page and th this allowed me to test it without actually uh, running it in the DOM and I got the right uh, logic so for me this is the main benefit of functional programming is that it's very easy to test I think that it being so easy to test is a side effect of it being easy to reason about which even independent of tests I think is um, a benefit in and of itself but of course uh, once you can actually test it it's great to have those tests in place yeah yeah yeah, that's great. So um, I, I forgot to mention at the beginning of the show, if you are watching live and you have a question, um, go to Twitter and with the hashtag JSAirQuestion, go, go ahead and ask your question and we'll answer those at the end of the show. So sorry um, to take us away from this uh, for just a second. It's uh, good. <laughs> I did want to throw in one thing in that last question about, you know, why. Um, and I, for me, my um, ultimate goal in life is to re get rid of selenium. I never want to have to write a Selenium test ever again. And, uh, you know, using pure functions and functional programming um, to separate the concerns of side effects from calculation allows you to um, really write these elegant programs that you could reason about and you don't need to go um, launch a browser and click through things. And I think it's going to eventually unlock the key to uh, much better programming styles where we can get around these long integration tests. I actually put a uh, link in the show notes from a blog post uh, that talks a little bit about that. So. By the way, have you noticed that people started uh, really uh, rejecting this uh, easy to reason about thing as a buzzword? Because everybody <laughs> keeps saying that and people are like, I don't know what to mean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I think that um, it's hard to explain it until you've actually gone through it and um, experienced, you know, what it means to not have to keep state in your head. And once you've actually gone through and had that experience, I think that the buzzword actually starts to make sense. I don't know, that might just be my experience. Um, do, do you feel that too, Dan? Yeah, I think uh, maybe one of the reasons it happens is also because uh, there are different um, you can take functional programming to different extremes, right? You can right. just apply it a little bit or you can apply it fully and uh, there is uh, this saying that uh, functional programming, 80% uh, of functional programming doesn't work, like you need to go 100%, some people say that. And so they mock the people who use it a little, uh, mm -hmm. saying that, hey, it's too hard to reason about. So there's fragmentation in the community about that. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, I would say I have been working on trying to understand the principles of functional programming for a really, really long time. I've read every blog post and book and gone to every conference talk, and in all of that exposure, the terminology has never sunk in for me. 
I think the concepts have sunk in, but I have never been able to wrap my brain around those. So I think there are some, at least some people, for whom the terminology can be a blocker, and I don't think we should propagate a culture that says if you don't understand the terminology, you're not part of the club. I think the concepts are the more important thing, which is why I like uh, Brian's take on things, because he basically tries to break it down to something that you could get the terminology around or you could leave the terminology aside and still benefit from it. Yeah, actually, that's the, that's the biggest benefit of what Dan and Brian has done is with Dan with Redux, he's taken functional programming and kind of brought it to the masses. And with Brian, with all his YouTube videos and things like that, uh, kind of like you mentioned, Kyle, it's, it's refreshing to not have to worry about what a modad is, but just worry about like immutability and things that actually are practical to me. Yeah, uh, there's a big problem in the, uh, well, it's not really a problem, but uh, divide. And, um, you know, people talk about the names of, like, oh, well, why don't we just call it a mappable? You know, you have a functor, and what is a functor, and that scares people. And then there's, you know, mappable makes instant sense. I have a map function. Um, but am I breaking up? It feels like everything stopped. It's what are you hearing? You're totally good. I'm good? Okay. Um well, anyway, uh, the the only the only thing I think that's tricky about it is I want to say mappable and say it has a map function. That any object with a map function is a functor or a mappable, right? But when you use the word functor, you're talking about uh, laws and properties that must hold um, and an intuition about it. So I know um, just like you know addition is associative, I can apply that to any monoid or you know. Uh, things like that. So it's it's like when you throw this scary word out there, you're like, what's a monoid? Ah! But um, when you say, oh, something with a concat method, um, you know, it's really, it's it becomes much more friendly and people are happier about it, but it also gets diluted a little bit to where people might be making instances that have a concat method but aren't necessarily going to hold those properties and laws. Yeah, you pretty much just freaked me out there for a second. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think this is very true, and and I wonder if maybe there's something that we can do or, or something to be done about um, the like the confusing terminology and and just how things are so different from what we're used to as um, imperative programmers and um, and uh, non-functional uh, programming style. And so what what are what are some things that somebody new to the space can do? Uh, to kind of get into functional programming in uh, an easier way. Um, I was going to say watch Dan's uh, Redux videos. <laughs> it's a great. Um, I don't know. I don't really know what else. <laughs> I think uh, it might be a good idea um, to check out Rx library. Uh, which is uh, reactive extensions for JavaScript. Uh, I think we're probably going to talk about it a bit later. Uh, but uh, the point is that it's kind of, if you heard about promises, it's kind of like promises, but for values, uh, the, for multiple values arriving over time. And the reason I'm talking about this uh, together with functional programming is that uh, Rx embraces functional programming. It lets you uh, create streams of data, like clicks of user or uh, data requests coming up or something like that. And it lets you use functional idioms like map, filter, so merging, uh, stuff like that to operate on these streams. And I think it's a great way to 
try to introduce functional programming because uh, Rx can be solved to uh, can be used to solve many real-world tasks, and it's also once you kind of get used to it, you can apply it pretty much everywhere. So I didn't use much functional programming in uh, in simple synchronous code, but I really got into it when I started writing asynchronous code, and Rx helped me with that. Kyle has a lot of uh, what he calls functional light stuff that really helps. It's in the same vein, like, you know, using map and filter and immutability. And from what I understand, Kyle probably knows more about this. <laughs> since, since you bring it up and since one of our show sponsors is Front End Masters, <laughs> I do have a programming course. Um, it was taped uh, earlier this, this fall and should be out, I think, in maybe February or something. But I have a course called Functional Light Programming. It tries to take the same perspective as you're hearing from uh, our guests today of building up the concepts and staying away too much from the terminology. So I cover all the things like pure functions and immutability um, from a very, very simple perspective. So it's like the 50,000-foot view of it. But that is my take is that those concepts have improved my code even though I've never and probably never will have the uh, justification to hold the functional programmers membership card because I don't really consider myself that um, but I think my code can benefit from understanding why a pure function is useful or understanding why treating a value is immutable whether it's immutable or not treating it as immutable improves the code um, so I think that's true one that but that brings me to a point I wanted to kind of push back on a little bit Brian I'm, I'm curious you, you said um, that there can be a problem if somebody takes one of the concepts and misses out on some of the other concepts and you're trying to reason about something. Um, do you think that it is uh, important for a piece of code to basically have a label on it that says, you know, like a big neon sign that says, hey, functional programmers, all of functional programming is alive and well in this program, so you don't have to think about it. Is that, is that where the value comes? It's almost like a shared lexicon, if you will. Or is the value more in those base concepts? Well, um, I think I think the reason um, people get so passionate about this is because there's there's a way to um, if if you're working within this small framework, we'll call it, you know, like this mathematical framework, um, where you're saying I'm not going to go outside and do uh, unprincipled things. I'm going to try my best to stay within these constraints, um, everything ends up being a Lego. Everything composes with each other. And um, otherwise, you might have some Legos here, some Silly Putty there, some Lincoln Logs there, and you need adapters, and um, you know everything was pure, but then something kind of poisoned the well, right? And it kind of removes the, it, it kind of blows away the composability of it all. So when I know I'm not in a composable world, uh, sprinkling in some stuff, and it doesn't really matter at that point. Like I can, I can program how I like, and it still have benefits. But when I am in a pure world, it's it's very much like anything will kind of, uh, you know, taint the purity of it if you're not if you're not very careful about following these laws and properties and saying like, oh hey look, if I have a you know map followed by a map, I can just fuse those into one map. And someone's like, oh well, my map doesn't actually work like that, <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's hard to, it's hard to reason about um, 
Uh, really, it's all built on generic composable interfaces with properties that hold. And if those properties hold, you end up with your your beautiful Lego world, right? So it's like 100% is great or like 20% is great, but anywhere in the middle is kind of like dangerous because it pretends too much and trips you up. Is, is that what you're getting at? Um, yeah, I guess I'm getting at um, if you want if you want the guarantee. Uh, for instance, <clears throat> if you have uh, and if everything's returning uh, a future, uh, which is you know it's like a promise that doesn't run until you kind of pull the trigger. Um, so it'll build up the computation. You can map over it um, instead of calling then. You call map. Works exactly the same way, and you can just go ahead and work with futures all day long. And at the end, you call fork, and it all runs. But if somebody cheated throughout here um, and, you know, actually ran it in the middle of something or let's say they, you know, mixed uh, futures with a promise that's not actually going to be, you know, pure and hold its, hold its value, then all of a sudden when you think things are going to happen, they're not. Or, you know, your, <clears throat> your properties of fusing these things into one, uh, one computation or one action uh, doesn't actually hold. So, yeah, like you said, like it's a hundred percent if you really want to get those benefits, and anything less is still great. Um, but it's good to know, <laughs> or else you're going to be tripped up. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I have common issue in Redux. Uh, we added this chip to troubleshooting, and people started hitting less. Uh, but people sometimes created issues like uh, I'm returning the new state, but it doesn't redraw. So what's happening? And when they post their code samples, uh, I see that uh, they have some deep mutation uh, or they don't realize they're mutating something because it's not exactly obvious. You need to train your eye in JavaScript to recognize mutations, recognize when they're doing something bad. And Redux assumes that you're not mutating the state. So it compares it by reference. It thinks, oh, nothing changed. I'm not going to re-render that. Uh, but on the other hand, because there is always um, a punishment for uh, for doing mutations because you don't see uh, your UI redraw. People catch that pretty quickly. But if there is no immediate uh, way to tell if something's going wrong, it's really problematic in mixed functional, non-functional code. Yeah, that kind of brings me to my next question, Dan. Is is we've kind of seen this shift towards functional programming on the front end side of things. Um, so the first question is, do you think that trend will continue and will kind of get more strict about functional programming with front-end stuff. And then the second question I had that I think I'm now spacing what it was. Oh, now I remember. So so we've kind of built tools around JavaScript to make it more functional. And, and JavaScript can do functional things, but it's not necessarily inherently built into the language. So do you, do you, think, do you see the future of functional programming uh, on the front-end side of things being more of like Elm or something that's like specifically built for it? Or do you think we'll continue to build tools around JavaScript to make it more functional? To be honest, I have no idea. <laughs> because uh, I see there is a trend of people uh, saying that JavaScript is never going to be fully functional, so just uh, forget about JavaScript, go learn Elm and uh, never come back. And that's one viewpoint. But there is also another viewpoint, which is that you're a giant corporation that has uh, hundreds of developers, and they come and go, and you can't afford to adopt a, a uh, somewhat experimental language uh, because there isn't enough talent to work on it. And you need to, people to be able to jump into code base and to make changes to the code that they don't own. Uh, they need to figure it out. They 
you don't want to teach them about uh, like monads or uh, I don't know about uh, side effects executing somewhere uh, in a in another land uh, or something like that. So um, I think working for at least for JavaScript, what's what I hope will happen is that we'll have more syntax affordances. Uh, for functional programming and have more syntax affordances for you know, immutable state and uh, immutable data structures because that's like the biggest pain point for me right now in terms of working with uh, immutability in JavaScript because there are libraries like immutable.js but then uh, if you print it to console, if you print an uh, immutable value to console, you, you're going to end up with gibberish so the tools don't understand them, you need to call through JS and if you have tools that are like React dev tools that display the component tree, they are also not aware of the immutable values, so they don't display them correctly. Then there's a problem, you can set uh, a field on the immutable structure without realizing you need to call the set method uh, and get the new version. So that's all kind of minor annoyances that contribute to large friction uh, that if you're not disciplined enough, uh, it's, it's harder to do this. And the only reason I think Redux succeeded right now is that ES6 adds a race spread operator. <laughs> and I know this is silly, but race spread operator and ES7 uh, spread, uh, object spread operator proposal, which a lot of people already use because it's just so useful, they change the picture. And, you know, JavaScript is uh, a language with a lot of syntax. And some people complain about it. But if that syntax helps us, helps beginners adopt uh, more less fragile uh, ways of writing code, is, I think it's good. So if JavaScript gets first-class support for immutable values, like I would be thrilled. That, that would be enough for me. And if I ever decide to write totally immutable code, okay, I'll just switch to Elm or whatever. But it needs to stay beginner-friendly and uh, not full of terminology. I actually had a question uh, on that terminology since you brought it up. Um, is there a danger in ignoring the terms of functional programming, or, or should we just kind of say, oh, the, the terms are for computer science experts, uh, theoretical stuff. Uh, let's, let's talk about more practical things. Is there any danger in, in ignoring these terms? I'm not really sure. I think it depends on how deep you want to go, because many people who uh, tweet and blog they want to go deep because they care about building the stuff, building the uh, building the abstractions, right? But there are also people who don't really care about building abstractions. They want to build products and they don't want to go deep into that terminology. And I think we ought to make it accessible to them too. Like it's not your fault if you don't want to uh, learn this uh, rabbit hole of uh, functional programming. So of course it's not going to be all the way, but if we can make at least parts of this accessible, I think it's a good step. And for people who want to dive, they can dive. I, mean. I, I, would, I would chime in uh, similarly that I think um, functional programming is um, an incredibly sharp double-edged sword with all of this amazing power that it seems like pretty much all of us sort of universally agree there's a lot of amazing power here but it is very sharp to the touch when someone shows up and the first set of results that they get in Google or the first book that somebody hands them starts throwing terminology like monads and functors and endofunctors and I mean it sounds more like the Star Wars universe to me than JavaScript programming and JavaScript has, has actually 
had the opposite path. It has, it has had this path where there was this incredibly low barrier to entry to get into JavaScript. And here we have this other thing that we're trying to bolt on top, which doesn't work the same way. You don't ease yourself into functional programming, unless, at least under most particular paths. Uh, Crockford has a great um, quote on this topic, and I don't often quote Crockford, so you know it must be good. <laughs> um, he has a great quote on this topic. He says, as soon as you learn functional programming, you stop being able to teach it. And I don't know whether that's entirely true or not, but uh, at least for my own part, that's one of the reasons why I have... Um, held back from getting too steeped in it because I don't want to get to the point where um, I can't think in anything other than the terminology because I think that will make it harder to bring people on board to it. So I, I do think there is a, almost a, a danger in getting too much into the terminology early on is because we basically create almost an elitism. Either you get it because your brain is wired that way, or you don't, and you pretty much should just go back to your kitty framework and let, let the real programmers figure out the terminology. Yeah, so it's so elitist in, in, um, in that regard. I think what I've tried to do um, with you know my examples throughout the last couple of years was uh, anytime someone tried to teach something, I would hear crazy words and no examples um, it, and implementation details, and that was it. And they're like, oh, here's a Komon ad. You can do this. But there's no actual use case. And you're like, what? Um, and so by providing use cases, you can kind of see what this thing is. Um, and, you know, of course, there is the danger of, of you know, diluting the, the meta information that comes along with a term. Um, but I think I found myself, I tweeted it yesterday, I found myself writing the sentence um, that the, it was like an interesting example of a, a contravariant monoidal functor is a transducer. <laughs> I was like, that's just, uh, um, but, you know, at the same time, if somebody says, you know, oh, well, it's contravariant, I can, you know, map over the input, and it's a uh, monoidal, I can cat it together, and it's a transducer, so that's going to be able to transform as it reduces, and all these things are so loaded, and it's a terse statement, but I've, I've expressed so much and so little, um, not to mention the properties that hold for contravariant functors and monoids and things like that, um, as well as, you know, being able to say, oh, well, if I have two monoids, I can, you know, put them together and form a ring, and now we can get the x and y axis to, like, you know, do some crazy algorithm that I don't know how to write. I can just provide two monoids. It's the same as we're just talking about interfaces but they're scary and it's elitist and it's kind of ridiculous. So how do you preserve the meta information and the properties without uh, scaring everybody to death? I think one yeah. problem here, sorry, uh, I just want to say that one problem here is that JavaScript is not really, uh, I mean, it has types, but they're not static, right? And people coming from statically typed language or strong, strong type, I always mistake these terms. Anyway, uh, people coming from languages where you have types when you declare a variable, they rock a functional programming much faster because uh, if it doesn't fit, right, it won't compile. But in JavaScript, you can run anything, and so you're going to run into weird runtime errors if you give the wrong inputs with the wrong types. Yeah, oh, I should mention that to Tyler's question. <clears throat> um, I'm, I'm a big, 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 big fan of Elm and PureScript and, and Haskell and all these languages that give you a compiler help and give you these types with, you know, all these extra, like, you know, um, for all X and, and, you know, higher order kinds and things like that. You don't, or higher ranks. 
Um, so the the point is that um, doing this in JavaScript is, is a great way to learn and could actually have some really secret benefits. Like if we could figure out how to use free monads, we can express full full programs and send them across the wire to run on the server or on other people's computers or you know on web workers. It's just basically a pure DSL that composes. Um, so you know, and then you interpret it wherever and whenever. So these things are so powerful that it's really interesting in JavaScript. But uh, you know, like you said, a uh, uh, typed language is going to be so much better to to you know write monads in because it's you know you need it sometimes. Um, otherwise, you're passing in type help to the actual functions. The traversable has that problem. Is it true to to characterize the reason why a functional programmer typically likes types? Is it true to characterize that as because the types are part of the constraints that keep you on the functional programming way? Like, um, because, you know, to our point of our current discussion, um, there is a debate. Um, I don't know whether, uh, where everybody stands on it, but there's a debate as to whether or not you need a language that is functional to be a functional program or whether you can write functionally in a non-functional language. I, I think there's no question JavaScript is not the same as something like Haskell because it doesn't require you to stay with these in these constraints. But do you feel like um, we have to have those types to keep us in those constraints to really be doing programming functionally? Or is it uh, can discipline be a substitute? Um. Did you want to go, Dan? <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to say I really like uh, the flow approach, the gradual typing. Like, it's up to you how much you want to opt into that, and you always have the escape hatches. And I think escape hatches is something that functional programming community doesn't like. Uh, and this is the elitist part where, uh, like, you don't want to provide a way for beginners to opt out of that for a second because they're just not sure how to fit this uh, small concern into the global state of things, right? And so, yeah, I, I like that you can, uh, with Flow, you decide, you get to decide where you want to uh, opt into that, and if you really want, you can opt out for part of the code. So we've talked about functional programming, but the show is also a little bit about immutability, and I think they're related. Um, can we talk a little bit about um, how immutability can help us in our programs? Or it can't, evidently. So, yeah, forget about immutability. It's just, yeah, it's dumb. <laughs> just kidding. No, I think um, if, if you've paid attention at all to uh, blog posts and, and the things that are going on in the React community and even Angular 2 now, um, you, you've heard all this stuff like, oh, immutability is awesome because you can do, like, a strict equality check on the objects rather than, it, like, a deep equality check uh, to check that. And, and then there's always the question, like, oh, well, um, isn't it like crazy memory terribleness to make copies of objects every single time? I think we've, we've um, you know, there's enough content out there that that covers most of those cases. Um, so, um, is is there anything in uh, functional programming and immutability, com or, or sorry, um, if if we don't program with uh, functionally, uh, or sorry, let me start all over. If we don't program with immutability, do we still get all the benefits from functional programming, or is it is it like a, just a whole lot better to combine the two, or how how are they really related? I'm back, by the way. 
before the before the guests actually give the right answer, I will just throw out that <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm a fan of treating things as immutable, even if they aren't immutable. And I think that would frame my particular perspective. I don't think we actually need to have something immutable to gain the value from the concept of immutability. Um, my, uh, my computer restarted, and I, and I wanted to say something about programming uh, Kyle's last question, because it's a really important one. Um, but let me uh, just let Dan talk about immutability, because he's better at that than I am. <laughs> okay, so the, the question is, uh, do we have to enforce it, uh, or, I mean, you can't really, the way I understand functional programming, and I might be wrong, but the way I understand it is that you use pure functions, and if you use pure functions, you can mutate things, right? Uh, so they always go together for me, and that doesn't mean that we have to use immutable data structures, so this is, uh, I see a lot of confusion about this. Uh, from the beginners, because they see a library called Immutable.js and they assume that, oh, okay, if I want to go Immutable, I gotta use that. But the reality is that you don't have to use it, uh, it just enforces certain constraints. But you can all also promise to uh, be good and not mutate things, uh, and just use regular objects and arrays in JavaScript, and this is where additional syntax helps. Uh, but other than that, I mean, there, there's also uh, a saying like if a function mutates, uh, if an immutable function mutates something inside of it, but it's just its implementation detail, does it really matter? And I think that in this case it doesn't matter. Like if the API is immutable, it's fine for the uh, parts inside it to be mutable if you want these additional bits of performance, but just keep the API immutable so that the consumers are not overloaded with this uh, kind of mutations because they're hard to think about. On that, on that topic, I am curious what you would say because <clears throat> I've always seen one of the primary benefits of a library like Immutable.js is that it gives us the capability without the performance hit. And um, I, I think we shouldn't um, underestimate uh, the potential problems of creating a chain of, you know, say, let's say 10 different map and uh, filter and reduce calls, you know, in, in one big chain, where at every single step an entirely new array is created and the previous one is potentially garbage collected. Um, that, you know, there's value in things like transducers where you try to combine those steps and not loop over them, but it's not just a CPU cost, it is a memory cost. And I've always seen that a library like Immutable.js is, is like growing up into functional programming when you realize, okay, I have the theory of FP is that I just make a new array whenever I um, do a map call. But in practice, that's terrible. I don't want to create a whole new array. Um, so what I actually need is to make a new thing that's only the delta. And oh, okay, that's going to be really hard. So that's why I need a library to figure that part out for me. Um, so I'm curious what your perspective is on that. Do you think that the performance is something that we should think about as programmers? Yeah, totally, uh, but I think it really depends on the product and it really depends on the uh, kind of performance you want because if it's uh, a product for native and if you're uh, changing stuff very quickly, of course you want to you want to minimize the memory usage, uh, you want to minimize the CPU, but if it's a website that displays like a feed uh, that doesn't change all the time and you need to, you can hit load more and displays 20 more items, like 
I'm not sure that there is a lot of uh, data mutations going on right now. So that's really, uh, are you willing to trade uh, the, uh, the, the need to, uh, for developers on your team to, be, uh, to understand the immutable API? So you need to learn another API, you need to be careful to use it, you need to hit, take that hit uh, uh, of the tooling, uh, the lack of proper tooling support. Uh, are you willing to trade that for great performance and for constraints? And some people are in big products and complex products, but if you're just beginner learning to like create a first website, I don't think you need to think about that. So it's it's an optimization, and I think before uh, choosing jumping to conclusions, you need to build a simple stress test for the kind of uh, usage you expect for your product and measure does it have uh, does it have a performance problem? And if it does, then it should use immutable. That, that's uh, something I was going to jump in just really quick and say, um, yeah, there's, uh, you know, purely functional data structures, there's ways, ways to handle this, and it only needs to be written once, really. It's not, like you said, being built into the language, having more adoption, um, especially with where concurrency is concerned, and, you know, I just read an article the other day about web workers being the new 2016 web workers. Uh, we'll see, you know, but, uh, you know, as we get to the parallel future and we share things and we mutate things, like, we're going to be able to, uh, it's going to be so much nicer to not have to worry about uh, random mutations, side effects, shared memory, all these things that declarative functional programming and immutability give you. Um, if we all agree and we all move towards it, we don't have to worry so much about, you know, nobody's written the, the most efficient tree yet, you know, somebody will. <laughs> I, I sort of, I know this may seem a little bit too reductionist, but I sort of liken the idea, I'm, I'm talking at a very base level here, because most people that do functional programming or dabble with it in JavaScript, they see it with respect to things like map and filter and reduce, and maybe for each, even though that's not really functional. Um, so those three, the map, reduce, and filter, is, is what most people call functional programming in JavaScript. And I liken that to a similar thing that we went through as a community, about seven or eight years ago, maybe a little longer than that, um, when jQuery and other frameworks introduced this fluent style of programming where you just simply call a method and then chain another method off it and chain another method off of it. And the fluent style of programming is incredibly attractive, but actually it leads to a really bad performance profile, which is one of the reasons, not the only, but one of the reasons why jQuery even though it became very popular, it's hated by most people that really take the, the true application performance to, to heart. Um, and instead of having five methods chained together, you prefer one method that did everything all at once, for example. Um, and I think the same is true in functional programming. And what, where I'm coming to is to say, I don't necessarily think that we need a library like Immutable JS to also be savvy of these things. So for example, if I have a chain that has four map calls in a row, um, I'm performing four separate transformations and four separate loops over the array, over the list every time, then there's another thing in functional programming, another concept, which I know has lots of terminology that I don't understand, but there's a concept of simply composing those transformation functions together and doing one map with that composed thing. Um, and I, we don't need a library to do that, I don't think. I think we can just explain, or I think we should explain to people that there is something to be said for not doing extra work just because it looks prettier in our code. 
question. So um, as as awesome as this has been, I think we need to wrap up because um, we do have several questions on Twitter. So maybe we should turn this into like a three-hour show. Um, but <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so um, I think it would be valuable to sum up kind of what um, our discussion a little bit. Uh, so for the immutability aspect, I think that we can probably mostly agree that um, for the most part, it's just simpler um, to think about um, your applications not enforcing immutability, just promising, like, I swear on my honor, I will not, you know, I will do immutability, um, but not actually enforce it with a library. But if you're really concerned about performance in, in your app, then bringing in something like Immutable.js or, or some of these other immutability libraries um, could bring you a great, huge performance boost. Um, and then on the functional side of things, we, we kind of determined that um, it's, it's awesome to do 100% functional programming. And in the web, that's, like, that's actually extremely difficult to do because you, you have to have something that's mutating the DOM. And that's, you know, you, we didn't really even get to talk about like, um, mutability at the edges of your program. But um, for the most part, try to, trying to keep the logic of your application um, functional. Um, and then um, if, if you can't quite do that for one reason or another, um, even having some of your application functional is good, um, but you don't want to give the impression that something is functional when it's actually not, because that can be dangerous. So I think that kind of sums up lots of the things that we talked about. Is there anything else that anyone would like to add? I just wanted to throw in earlier, my computer just like randomly restarted um, <laughs> to the question about, you know, um, is doing functional programming um, natural or right in, in JavaScript, like 100%. And um, I think right now, if you experiment with Ramda or, or um, you know, the Fantasyland spec and all these things, you'll see a lot of benefits and you'll get addicted. So there's something to it. Uh, but you should, uh, I've primarily used it to uh, hone my skills and become better at Haskell or, or Elm or, you know, I guess I haven't really done that much Elm, but PureScript. So... Um, that kind of stuff, it's, it's amazing to do this every single day at work and not have to work in pure scripts where they won't let me do that, you know, <laughs> um, and, or practice at night and, and weekends. And there's a lot of uh, benefits there and a lot of joy there that you'll discover, um, whether it's right or wrong. <laughs> cool. Thanks. Um, okay, cool. So let's go ahead and get into our Twitter questions. Uh, we do have several here. So the first one is from Connor Elsie, um, I think. Uh, he says, great talk so far, but what are some of these properties and lots? Oh, shoot, I forgot. I was going to ask for context on this question. Um, I don't know. Do, do either... Oh, I, know. I know what we're talking about. Okay. Well, thank you. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was talking about um, how, you know, using um, the term whatever, if I say um, contravariant functor, someone's going to say, like, what are you talking about? Get away from me! Bring out the mace, you know. Um, but if 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 you are open to hearing that word and knowing it's not such a scary word, you just need to. It's just a loaded word. Um, it comes with a set of properties, just like uh, multiplication distributes over addition. Um, you can have these little little code snippets that you know hold true for everything. So um, my the best example would really just be look at the Fantasyland spec um, on GitHub, and it'll it'll just show you properties that hold for each interface that you. So if you say the iterator pro protocol 
holds this property that it must hit every single element. That's all you were saying. Like, and if you wrote an iterator that skips some elements, don't call it an iterator. <laughs> you know, so. Okay, cool. Thanks for having the context. You just pulled that out of Connor's brain. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Ignacio Chavez, I think is, yeah, I just apologize if I say your name wrong. Um, what is the reality of spas with FP and Lisps? Since FP means no side effects, I don't see people doing web dev. I made a cute video about, um, about like, FP and Lisp and, and Scala and Purity and this and that at some point, just like, you know, with, when you're talking about... Um, uh, it's hard to say FP and Lisp for me in the same sentence because I'm always coming from a Haskell-y perspective, so then, but um, maybe somebody else can talk about this. Anybody know? <laughs> I, I know nothing about this stuff, so... Um, Good luck, Ignacio. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Uh, okay, Vincent O uh, asks, how uh, have any of you guys managed to have a play with Cycle.js, a JSFP framework built on top of RxJS? Whoa, <laughs> that's a long question. I think I think I I, I ran uh, the most basic example, although that was a long time ago. But I just generally look at the uh, source uh, source examples in the releases and wait for it to like wait for my eyes to get accustomed to this and to actually be able to read this because I understand conceptually it's uh, not hard. Uh, I wrote some Rx code before and Rx is pretty good, uh, but it, it it's a bit more noisy on my eyes. So what I'm really hoping to happen is uh, something Andreas Saltz, actually uh, the author of Cycle, he wrote about it in his latest blog post, is that uh, the RxJS free write is going to um, have some kind of special API that can be used to build uh, developer tools for Rx that can track uh, all the observables and how they relate to each other. And it's also possible to do this uh, via static analysis because you have variable declarations, you have uh, guarantees that uh, they uh, are going to depend one on another, they don't have some side effects in between, and so you can build a graph of all the observables in your app. And I think if these tools become mainstream, if we can see the relationships between observables, they're going to uh, gain much bigger adoption. And Cycle is like, the, the most sensible framework I saw that uh, uses Rx, so, yeah. Cool, yeah. I've seen the talks and I'm, like, blown away, but it's it's still way over over my head, I think, right now. Oh, uh, can I can I interject? I, the last question about the side effects, it just kind of made sense to me. Um, you can have side effects in functional programming, <laughs> very much so. In fact, Lisp doesn't enforce that, Scala doesn't enforce You can just go do whatever you want, whenever you want. Um, but pure functional programming... Different, different idea. You want to push all your effects to the callee. It's an inversion of control thing. So instead of actually running a function that does some kind of effects, you just uh, basically kind of propagate it all the way up to the controller or whatever you want to call it, the thing that's going to uh, be the last possible uh, line of code and everything else is pure in your model. Yeah, I think this is the biggest, like, if you want to get started with functional programming in JavaScript, but you're not sure how, just start by pushing your side effects to the edge of your application. And it, it, 
For example, this is what React does with view rendering, right? Because you describe your DOM declaratively, and then you push those side effects to React, which has a single file like React DOM operations or something like that with five methods that uh, does all the DOM mutations, but they don't happen anywhere else. And you're going to get really far if you just follow this principle that you separate the computations from the mutations, and you keep mutations in the smallest slice of your application possible. My totally layperson, non-FP perspective on this is, yes, um, non-pure operations are virtually required um, to have any kind of non-trivial application, but it seems like a functional programmer's answer to impurity is you can write as many impure functions as you want as long as you wrap all those up in a pure function. So it's kind of like it's not really turtles all the way down. It's not really pure all the way down. It only has to be pure at the highest level of abstraction that you expect people to interact with. And everything else inside, I think you're kind of free to do whatever you want. I don't know if that's true, uh, but that's my outside perspective. Well, I mean, if you consider it uh, like a promise, um, or like we're saying fork, like you're treating a value as if it's there, even though it's not. Um, and as you map over it, that value gets passed into your function, and you can actually work with it, right? Um, and the I/O abstraction uh, is a similar idea. It's not asynchronous, but you just you have a value you're working with that's not actually there yet. And what you, that gives you is the ability to like put it into data structures. It allows you to um, pass that I/O all the way around your program, do all sorts of things, and then at the last possible second, you can choose to run it or not. Um, but it also can do things like uh, earlier, Kyle, you mentioned jQuery's um, chaining. Uh, that's, you know, you can take an I.O. and another I.O. action, and as you chain those, you can actually fuse into one object. You don't need to keep making copies. Um, because of certain laws and properties, we can automate this. Computers don't understand intuition or uh, common sense. They understand very strict properties. So you could say, I can chain you know, 100 times, and instead of returning a new copy, I'll just return this, because you know, it doesn't really matter outside of this world. Um, and by the time we get to the point where we actually want to run the side effect, we could have done optimizations. We could have gotten rid of things. We could have fused things. And um, you kind of do maybe one, one DOM reflow in the case of React instead of 30 throughout your application as you're changing things. Wow, like so much just made sense to me. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> cool. <laughs> cool. Um, all right, so our next question is from Bradley Meck, and he asks, are the implicit slash non-enforced FP contracts worth hidden tribal knowledge? My history is implicit contracts hurt maintenance, and that would be my history as well. Yeah. Um, I, think, I think, you know, that's... Uh, I think we're talking a fine line between uh, we must have types or you know dynamic programming is fine. Um, you know if you if you trust you understand what's going on in the types and you you know and you understand the knowledge and people are expressing it, um, whether that's naming conventions or you know comments or whatever, we're, we're we can't guarantee it without strong types. So um, you know you're in JavaScript, deal with it. <laughs> I, I would invoke the comment, uh, the, the maxim, which is not unique to me. Uh, you have to know the rules first before it's okay to break them. So uh, <laughs> I think once you know them, it's okay to break them. Nice. I need a t-shirt with that on there. 
as well as separate your computations from your mutations. I love that. <laughs> cool. So Charlie Coster asks, if you allow devs to do um, stupid things, um, they will. That's one of the advantages of Elm in regards to FP. So that wasn't really a question, um, but <laughs> um, Another I strong read these ahead of time. <laughs> but, uh, d does anybody have any comments about that? It's another types versus no types, dynamic yeah. versus strong, whatever. You know, like, I like them both, and so I can be like, ha, 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 you're all silly. Um, like uh, how Kyle says, you got to know the rules to break them. If you're, if you're in a dynamic language, you know there's types there, and you know you can cheat if you want. Um, but if you're, you know, you're disciplined, you can do it. Cool. Um, I think we're, we have a couple more questions, but I, I don't think that we have the time. There was one other question that I thought most of our listeners and viewers would be interested in knowing about, and that is, um, where, where does the community usually talk? IRC, Discord, where's a good place to discuss online? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I know uh, there's a there's a functional programming and JavaScript Google group uh, someone uh, created. Um, you know, like, there's a bunch of IRC stuff. I, I've been on an IRC one at some point. Um, people talk about I have that mostly adequate guide. People talk on the threads on the Git book, <laughs> so that's fun. I just uh, used to read it, or I don't use anything else now. Yeah, I think the, the danger is or, or the worry is that you go to like a hardcore functional programming community and you're just going to get nailed for not knowing what a monad is or whatever. And you know, we kind of talked about that a little bit earlier. So uh, Twitter's pretty friendly <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> so um, cool. Let's go ahead and jump into our tips and picks um, unless there's anything else somebody wants to bring up that they thought of last minute. Okay, cool. So, um, yeah, we'll go ahead and start with uh, Getify. What do you have for, for us, Kyle? Um, so I um, wanted to just highlight a couple of really, I have several things, so I'll go very quickly. Uh, there's a fantastic book out there by uh, his Twitter handles, Ragenwald, it's JavaScript Allonge. Um, it takes a really unique take on this whole functional programming thing. Um, it, it definitely is, is true to the principles, but you don't feel reading that book like you do in a typical academic book. So that's a, that's a really good one to check out. Um, my tips would be, um, and I know Lynn will love this, I would say definitely it's time to rediscover the developer tools in Firefox, and I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. There's some amazing stuff there. Um, specifically, there was a, an article that Smashing Magazine just released um, talking about that, and the links will be in the, the show notes, but uh, I, I was particularly blown away reading about Web IDE and Valance, as well as the CSS Transforms Previewer. Those were two that jumped out at me. I hadn't seen that before. I thought those were pretty great. My picks, um, I mentioned her at the beginning of the show, there's a two-part blog post that literally came out today by Chris Jenkins. On The first one, first part is, what is functional programming? The second part is, which programming languages are functional? Um, <laughs> Really, actually, the, the, per, the first part of the blog post is absolutely essential. If you've listened to this and you're at all interested in this functional programming topic, go read that blog post. I thought it was great. Um, since we brought up asynchronous programming a bit, I do have a pick for an article I read a while back, maybe six months back. Um, but it really tries to derive the functional um, underlying principles of asynchronous programming from a functional perspective. 
um, from Callback to Future, Functor Monad. Um, it's a long article, and there's a lot to read, but I found that to be really fantastic, especially since I spent a lot of time thinking about asynchronous programming, so it was cool to see the ties between those two. And finally, I will um, bring up, uh, it was mentioned in passing on the, uh, I think Brian mentioned it, but I'll, I'll also pick the article, Concurrency's Future on the Web. It's called 2016 Will Be the Year of Concurrency on the Web. Um, uh, Cram Force on Twitter wrote that. It's, a, it's an interesting article. I'm not sure I entirely agree with it. Um, but I am a big fan of concurrency, so I'm absolutely cheering that that will, in some way, shape, or form, end up being the future. So go check those out. Thanks, Kyle. Uh, Lynn, can you give us yours? Sure. Um, so my tips this week are uh, some Git tricks that I picked up and you know years after starting with Git, and all of a sudden I was using them all the time. Um, so these are just two, and if any viewers or any of the other panelists have any that they want to share, I'd love to hear more because I love those little tricks that uh, speed you up just that little bit. Um, so one of them is uh, if you do git checkout dash, it will flip you back to the branch that you were just on. So if you're switching between branches, um, that can be really handy. And uh, another one, of course, there's hub. If, you don't, uh, if you're not familiar with hub, check out hub. That's a really good way um, to uh, do things with GitHub specifically. And another GitHub specific thing is um, you can actually set up your GitHub config to fetch any PRs that have on a particular repo. Um, whenever you do a fetch, uh, each of those PRs will come down as a branch too. So that's really good if you have to do reviews um, on projects where I've been uh, you know, doing most of the reviews. That's been super helpful. And my picks uh, this week are, um, so we were talking about functional programming, and I mentioned um, you know, about being easy to reason about. Uh, I, I found a really helpful talk um, that really helps you understand what people mean, or at least what some people mean when they talk about functional programming being easy to reason about, uh, was Jessica Kerr's talk at um, React Rally, where she looked at um, the you know uh, functional principles that you have in React. So this isn't getting into monads or anything like that. Um, she uses some really interesting analogies, like the idea of you know tentacles coming in from side effects coming into your brain as you're working on um, a particular part of the code. So if you want to get a really quick, easy introduction to that idea, it's kind of like what Dan's talking about, where you separate your computations from your mutations. You know how that actually makes it easier to reason about code. Check that out. And that's it for me. Well, thanks, Tyler. All right, so I just have two picks. Uh, James Long, who works at Mozilla, he probably works with Ulan. Uh, yep, he, he does. Wrote a, he wrote a really good blog post called Starters and Maintainers. Basically, it's it's basically him speaking from the heart. He has a lot of open source projects. Um, and they're really fun to start, and sometimes they get really hard to maintain. So he kind of just walks through his struggle with doing that, and and I think it really highlights kind of the emotional—I uh, don't know the exact word—but sometimes it's tough being an open source open source author. And he really nails that article really well. So check that out. And my last pick is classroom coding with Pro Professor Frisbee. It's one of my favorite things on the internet. If you haven't seen thank it, you, thank you. Uh, yeah, it's it's fantastic. Uh, just go watch it. Uh, there's th I think there's three episodes right now. Brian, is that right? Yeah, yeah. I gotta get making some for Egghead now, yeah. so I'm gonna take yeah, a they're, break. They're fantastic. <laughs> Basically, uh, it is a very 
uh, fun way to learn about functional programming uh, topics. So definitely check that out. Awesome. Okay, so for me, um, I just am about to, to start, well, I guess I've technically started full-time at PayPal, and I'm working from home, and my wife for Christmas got me, uh, she made me a standing desk, and it's amazing. Um, my wife is a boss, and so um, try out a standing desk. Uh, standing desks are awesome. Um, you just feel like you have so much more energy, and um, I realize like not everybody can do it, but it's it's really nice. Um, and like you can have a chair and whatever, and sit down every now and then. But it's really nice to be able to stand during the day. Um, and my picks, I pick Lowe's because Lowe's is responsible for the wood that I am uh, that created the standing desk. And um, I also pick the ES2016 pipe operator. Um, there's a specification for it. Um, I'm, it's kind of interesting, and it's related to our functional programming that we talked about. Um, and then learn JavaScript arrays in depth. This is a playlist on Egghead.io that talks about uh, reduce and map and a bunch of other uh, JavaScript array methods that uh, you should be familiar with um, when you're doing functional programming in JavaScript. So that's me. Brian, uh, why don't you go next? Sure. Uh, so I... <laughs> <laughs> added my crazy words link. Um, oh yeah, so uh, John Dagos, he um, wrote a great article on uh, just modern FP architecture. Um, it's it's really like um, pure scripts or Haskell-y, so it's not so JavaScript-y, but uh, for me, um, it's one of those ways that we're going to be able to write uh, pure UI code um, that could work on any framework or whatever and just basically write high-level descriptive DSLs that actually compose. He talks about free monads and free applicatives. It gives a really good idea of what they are and how useful they are and where we should be going uh, as a functional community, um, but it's not necessarily JavaScript because it's kind of uncharted waters and there's no uh, really good way to do, uh, do syntax, which is pretty much how to use them, so we need some creativity there. Um, but I think it's really important ideas. Um, so there's that link, um, and then see what else I added here. Um, oh, uh, my t my tips. Um, so yeah, watch Dan's Redux videos. Those are so good, um, and they just get you so excited to write um, in a functional way. Um, and you know that in combination with uh, Ramda JS or um, you know Immutable JS and other things like that, you can really set up an environment where you feel like you're in a whole new language and it's just so much fun. Um, there's that. Uh, and I just wanted to give uh, one more tip. Um, uh, it's that uh, if you're trying to learn functional programming and um, you're past the beginner stage and you're in the intermediate stage and you see all these crazy words and you want to read the white papers but you're seeing math syntax and Greek letters and scary stuff like that, um, a really helpful book for me was uh, the Haskell programming, or it was like the Haskell Road to uh, Maths and Logics, or some Logics and Maths. I don't even know how to say it. Let me just like look at the link. Uh, the Haskell Road to Logic, Maths, and Programming, um, and it's uh, an incredible book that kind of goes through just linear logic, some set theory, and and um, you know some category theory, and kind of shows you from beginning to end. Um, how all this stuff is related, and so you can kind of grok this Curry-Howard isomorphism stuff and really read these white papers without being afraid. Um, so I, I loved that book. 
uh, from being someone who just like sucked at math in high school and you know didn't get through so much college. <laughs> just like so, there's that. And then finally, my pick is uh, for JS. Um, February 10th, we're going to have a functional panel. Um, so, uh, you know, Evan Chaplicki uh, from Elm is going to be there, and Phil Freeman uh, from PureScript is going to be there. We're going to have a whole, uh, and the author of Immutable JS, or Open Source Maintainer at least. Um, so we'll have some cool functional stuff there. Okay, that's it. <laughs> Tons of resources. Man, the tips and picks uh, on this show are stellar. Um, Dan, what do you have? Sorry, muted. Uh, so uh, my first pick is uh, uh, it's a document uh, that you can read. It's called uh, A General Theory of Reactivity. Uh, it's a GitHub repo, but it's just a very long readme uh, by Chris Cowell, who was the author of the Q uh, Promise library that is not as popular anymore, uh, but it was one of the pioneering Promise libraries before Promise back emerged. So uh, it compares uh, different async patterns uh, like uh, iterator, which is synchronous, and observables, which are asynchronous, and promises. And it really, if you're confused about these terms, it's a really good way to just sit and read through all of it. Uh, he does a great job explaining this and how they relate to each other. So my second pick is going to be an article from a few years ago, uh, two years to be precise. Uh, it's called The Future of JavaScript MVC Frameworks. Uh, it was written uh, by David Nolan, the author of OM, uh, and uh, this was one of the articles that sparked my interest in React, and his predictions came true in a way because uh, two years ago, like keeping all your state in a single immutable object, it seemed like a crazy idea to most JavaScript developers. But today, Redux is fairly popular, and it's exactly what it advises. So uh, it's a great way to look back uh, uh, two years ago and see how much we progressed uh, during this time. My third pick is uh, a whole blog. Uh, it's called Programming in the 21st Century, and it's my favorite blog. So the link is to the archives. I read all of it, and I suggest you do the same. Uh, if you have a sleepless night or a lot of time, uh, just go through all articles because it's amazing. It, it talks a bit about functional programming and a lot of different things. Uh, the entries are fairly short and there's a lot of condensed thought there, and there's a lot of empathy and friendliness. It's not elitist, uh, so it's a great blog. I suggest you read it. And finally, uh, one project that caught my eye recently, if you use Redux, you might want to check it out. It's called Redux Saga, uh, which is an alternative way to uh, write side effects for Redux, like you want to fetch data, usually you do this with uh, async middleware, like Redux Tonk, but Redux Saga is an alternative way to do that uh, that promises to be more composable, promises to be uh, easier to test because it's based on generators and it's declarative, so you can test things in isolation. And it seems really great for uh, complex flows like uh, when you have a, a registration flow, when you need to tell the user to do this, do this. So you have a script of actions that need to happen in an asynchronous way. Uh, it's a great way to orchestrate those without uh, jumping to use observables uh, if you don't want to learn them yet. So these are my picks. 
All right, awesome. Um, okay, so that's our show. Uh, just uh, some closing announcements here really quick. Go to uh, suggest.javascriptair.com to suggest episodes for us, uh, topics and guests, and uh, maybe we'll um, have some awesome, well, hopefully we have awesome stuff in the future. Um, um, but maybe some of those will be your suggestions. And then uh, also we love your feedback, so go to feedback.javascriptair.com and submit some feedback to us, and we do take that to heart. Um, and then, again, next week is a unit testing uh, in JavaScript show that we're super excited about. Same time, same place. Um, and follow us on Twitter, Google+, and Facebook to keep up with the latest. So thanks, everybody, um, and I'll, we'll catch you on the Twitters. See you next week. See ya.